This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Siemens. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Leaders in education and manufacturing join the Post for a deep dive into the incredible change their industries have seen in the last year. Let's listen. Hello, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Christina Passariello, technology editor for the Washington Post. And I'm very pleased to present today's program on the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on digital transformers. We'll first hear from two of the nation's leading public school administrators, Austin Butner, superintendent of the Los Angeles Unified Public School District. Welcome, Superintendent Butner. Thank you. Good morning, and thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us. And Dr. Joris M. Ray, superintendent of Shelby County Schools in Memphis, Tennessee. Welcome to you, Superintendent Ray. Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. Thank you both so, so much for joining me. Um, education is something everybody wants to know about these days. Um, so maybe we can just start. Um, so our viewers understand, tell us where both of your districts are at in terms of reopening. Maybe Superintendent Butner, we can start with you. Sure. Uh, we've outlined a plan to open uh, in the next couple of weeks, depending upon three things happening. The first would be continued progress in decline in the rate of COVID in the communities we serve. Uh, the second would be a confirmation, which we already know that we've done everything we can to mitigate risk in schools and put the safest possible set of measures in place. So we've changed air filtration systems in 80 million square feet of buildings. We built the nation's most comprehensive school-based COVID testing system. We most recently launched with Microsoft a system to integrate all the information about COVID testing and vaccinations. And as our educators, school staff are provided with vaccinations, we've got a specific schedule to open schools when they're offered the opportunity to be vaccinated. So a matter of weeks. Got it. And Superintendent Ray, how about you? Well, thank you. Actually, our teachers are starting back March the 1st, which is Monday. Uh, we have teachers, uh, as we speak, getting vaccinated today. Uh, I just want to thank our local um, health department for really prioritizing teachers and really working with us. So we've seen a big decline in uh, the um, number of cases and decline in the um, positivity rate here. But also now we are uh, putting our plan into action. Our buildings are just well equipped with the proper um, um, PPE and and uh, we have signage and and our air quality systems been checked and rechecked and now we're we're ready to go. So that's that feels like tomorrow, Superintendent Ray. <laughs> Monday is really soon. <laughs> so after all of these months of of distance learning, now that you're preparing to get everybody back. Um, tell us a little bit about how you're using technology with the return to in-person in learning. So our teachers uh, still will be using uh, technology. We have one modality to provide instruction. Many of our parents, um, they're choosing to remain virtual. Uh, I want to say 75% of our parents still remain virtual. So our teachers will be teaching in person as well as uh, virtual. So uh, we're excited about the opportunity and we just wanted to ensure equity in the classroom. That's why we didn't want to have a um, 
different way of delivering instruction in person than virtual since majority of our kids will remain um, virtual. You know, Christina, and, throughout, yeah. we had to take some steps to make sure the tools were in place to connect. So we had to make sure half a million students had a computer. We had to make sure all students and their families were connected to the internet. We think of the digital divide as often occurring between South and North Dakota somewhere, but actually it's in Memphis or Los Angeles where families may not be able to afford internet access. So we had to do that first. Like Memphis, we'll continue with dual mode instruction because families may make a choice that's safer for their family to have their student stay online. And we continue to use the technologies to do things differently. So we've created classes with Fender Guitar where we send guitars home to students and they participate with teacher-led instruction online. Uh, we had Snapchat work with us on a book club where Alicia Keys introduced our students to books that they could download and read on their own. So we'll continue to innovate and use the technology to complement what happens in the classroom, but there's no substitute for being in classroom with a teacher and the engagement that can happen within that space. Absolutely. And super I'm, I'm sorry, Superintendent Ray, go ahead. Oh, I just uh, agreeing wholeheartedly, you know, uh, all means all and here in Shelby County Schools, um, you know, I was asked when we uh, garnered devices, what I was, was I willing to put my career on the line for these devices? And I said, I'm willing to put it all on the line for our students and families in the name of um, equity. And I'm just thankful to our school board and our digital advisory committee uh, and their invaluable input because uh, we had to do some hard work to ensure students had um, access to these devices. Uh, you know, we had a historic vote during a special call meeting back in June 2020, uh, where our um, school board uh, approved one one digital our one one digital device plan that put more than 95,000 new devices in hands of every student uh, within our district. And we provided internet um, uh, hotspots and, and we provided approximately that to 25% of our families who expressed the need that they need the hotspots because we had uh, internet deserts here. So we had to mitigate that risk. Um, we spent upward of $100 million on digital uh, devices and, and just that includes devices, teacher uh, supports, initial configuration costs and device insurance. Um, and its success will be measured um, based on student um, academic gains and literacy improvement. So uh, we spent uh, approximately $100 million over the next four years to ensure that get our as as superintendent um Boltner said here that um you know we had to put assistance in place first and so superintendent ray so the first few months of the pandemic when it sounds like maybe you didn't have that same kind of one-on-one -on -one device allocation compared with now um what kinds of differences have you seen in terms of just attendance um of your students, uh, as well as you know their performance academically. Yeah, we've uh, we of course take attendance every day, and uh, you know making the transition, uh, being all virtual, 
our attendance, uh, it's pretty much the same. Um, I think it's right at 91%, 92%. Uh, we're not far off from the uh, our uh, average, which is around 94%. Uh, so again, these devices, we talked about having a one-on-one -one strategy prior to the pandemic. We Our, our uh, team was talking about this February uh, 2019. And then, you know, March 20, when the pandemic hit, uh, I was so fortunate to have a great team who rolled out our plan that we've already had. Uh, and we didn't get funded for it, but with the um, CARES dollars, we were able to uh, fund the devices. Uh, again, uh, our parents have adjusted well. Our teachers, you know, had to receive professional development over the summer. Uh, we had to roll out 95,000 devices, uh, which usually takes, uh, you know, approximately three years to really implement a full one-on-one -on -one strategy. Um, my team did the work uh, in eight weeks. So uh, we've had our challenges, but they've been minor, uh, you know, with the uh, younger children having to adjust with the, with the devices. But our teachers have been great. Uh, our teachers, you know, give they all 100% uh, every day. And so our biggest challenge, we know that nothing is like in-person instruction. We don't, you know, argue with that at all. But when folks will ask the question, when are you guys returning to school? When are you going to school? My answer is we've been in school since uh, August 31st. And our students and teachers, uh, they haven't missed a beat. And Superintendent Butner, I understand that LA Unified also had a very large scale distribution of both devices and internet connections. And yet 80% of the students in your district are below the poverty poverty level. So can you give us a sense of um, if that, you know, if the devices and the internet connections are enough for these kids who are really in need? Well, we know uh... It's table stakes, as difficult as it is uh, for my colleagues in Shelby County or around the country to make sure a student has a device, that that device is properly connected to the internet. That's just table stakes. And so the question is, what are we able to do to use those to help students not just recover learning loss, but move forward? Uh, and I'll give an example of what we started again back in August, because the process of recovery started for us last August, not next August. And we launched a program called Primary Promise we brought on an extra 250 early literacy instructors because we're providing the promise of literacy, math, critical thinking skills while in elementary school. And we're able to use the technology to do real-time quick little diagnostic, not the big summative year-end state tests, but rather work with each student and their unique needs. So we were able to assess the shortfalls to start the year. And we were probably about 10% behind in reading proficiency from a normal year of our first graders, for instance. And we might've expected that because a kindergartner from a family struggling to get by where 80% of our families were living in poverty before this pandemic, uh, surveys have told us about three quarters of the families had someone lose work due to COVID. So the struggle is very real in the communities we serve. It's very real when we've served 110 million meals and it, through schools. And if you stood outside a school you would wave to the same family who bring their children to the school. So the struggle is very real. The support may not be there at home in that family 
to help the child log on, to help them learn. And so we've started a recovery process going back to last August, and it's working. We've already helped students get to where we hope they would have been uh, in more normal times, and we want to see them accelerate their pace of progress. But the conversation has to quickly get to how do we accelerate the path of recovery? Uh, what the superintendent was able to do in Shelby, we were able to do in Los Angeles, was do something that in normal times, three years, they did in eight weeks. Three years for us, we did in eight weeks. You know, we just had a terrific set of colleagues rise to the challenge and get that done. But the next challenge has got to be how we use these tools, technologies, and accelerate the path of recovery while many of our students are in a classroom and many of our students remain in online learning. And, and that's the challenge of the moment. Um, uh, and I think we'll rise to that occasion. We're trying different things. I'm sure they are in uh, Shelby as well. Absolutely. And Superintendent Butner, can you tell us um, some of the things that, you know, since you made this re the return in August with this new plan, um, what are the, some of the things that you've realized haven't been working with remote learning and, and how have you adjusted to those? Sure. You could see almost at every level there's a challenge. So early literacy, pretty hard to learn to read over a computer. Uh, I, I've yet to see that uh, a student, a uh, seven, eight, six-year-old child doing that by themselves. So you have to provide that extra support, the one-on-one -on -one tutoring, the extra teachers to be one-on-one -on -one in small groups with students. So we see it at those levels. Uh, we see all the way toward our graduating students. We see lesser completion of FAFSA forms, college aid forms, probably about on par with the state or national averages, maybe 15% lesser. And that's going to take an all-government approach because even the forms that we're trying to help students complete so that they can uh, receive financial aid for college, they're still in those forms referring to 2019 incomes. So I got the wrong numbers. Uh, the federal government hasn't updated their own forms. And if we know three quarters of our families have lost some work due to the crisis, we got bad data that we're being asked to populate into forms like that. So at each level, Christina, we're seeing a different sort of challenge. And as we problem solve for it, problem solve early with more instruction, problem solve at the high school level with additional counselors to work on completion, graduation, and the bridge to college uh, and everything in between. I think part of the recovery process we'll start talking about soon, we should have been talking about and should be talking about now is the mental health side. Again, families living in trauma, just think of those young children who each day go to a food bank with their family for food. Uh, the communities we serve have been the hardest impacted in the nation by the virus itself. At one point, as recently as December, where we are conducting weekly tests of students and school staff, asymptomatic children showing no symptoms, no known exposure, one in three children were testing positive with the virus. So that trauma, that anxiety is very real. And as we look forward, we have to make sure and all the government approach, a Marshall Plan, if you will, is in place to make sure that schools have the resources they need, the people they need to support our students. Uh, yes, Superintendent I, Ray, I agree with Superintendent. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> go ahead, I'm sorry. No, yeah, I, I agree with Superintendent Buchner. Um, you know, we had to undergird the learning here. Um, we actually uh, had to give out millions of meals um, to just to ensure that our students and families had food. Uh, we had a breakfast, lunch, and um, dinner program here. Uh, but not only that, uh, he hit on social emotional learning. 
and hit on the emotional needs of our children. Um, same as there, um, the virus has had a tremendous impact on um, black and brown people here. And uh, our kids and just, just listening to them and having a student round table, uh, they talk about the fear of just seeing people in masks. Uh, they talk about the fear of family members dying and the fear of folks getting sick. So we've put supports in place to ensure that our students receive guidance and um, counseling to help them overcome their fears. But um, we've had some virtual victories to where our teachers really uh, adapted to the uh, digital platform well. Same as Superintendent Butner, it's very difficult to uh, teach reading via um, um, online instruction. However, our teacher, they, teachers have done a phenomenal job. So we um, have, you know, data nights or, or had data nights to really dig into the data and speak to parents about where the child is performing. We have data dashboards that we constantly mine the data, look at the data, see how we can improve uh, instruction here. But what I'm really concerned about is the mental health and well-being of our students and our teachers. And uh, we're doing all we can to ensure that we support them and doing all we can to ensure that we're providing a safe place for students to uh, return in person or uh, remain online. And, and Dr. Dr. Ray, to that point, um, as you think about reopening next week, many of uh, your students, I imagine, will have led for nearly a year, um, you know, a large part of their social life online and their social interactions on Zoom, on, on video games. So how are you thinking about that, um, the social element of, of not being as dependent on technology when they're back in the classroom? You know, when they're back in the classroom, of course, you know, our students have to uh, remain socially uh, distant. That's why we have family meetings to go over all the, the background for students so they could, they understand that, you know, uh, school is a school as we once knew it. And uh, they're gonna have to adjust, but we're gonna give students opportunities to uh, interact but not interact physically. Uh, just this morning, uh, I had a parent um, email me and one of the board members to really speak to the fact about recess. And uh, the parent was misled to think that we weren't gonna have in, uh, um, recess. And so that students wouldn't have the opportunity to really get fresh air, go outside, be normal, play. Uh, however, uh, you know, the parent learned that, you know, we can't use playground equipment. They can't climb and do some of the things and swing as they uh, used to do. Uh, we have to take every precaution it is to keep students safe. However, we want students to uh, you know, just have as much normalcy as possible. We provided day in the life visuals for our parents to show them how that day will look from the time they leave their home till they return home and everything in between. 
We're going to have mask breaks for students. It's very difficult just to think. And I, I think of myself and I look at my cabinet members sometimes when you have on masks for, for long periods of time. And just think about a kindergarten student, first, second grade student uh, with mask on. So we built in mask breaks to where students can go outside, get fresh air, take their masks off. But we try to do things to for them to interact with one another uh, at a distance uh, so that we can provide as normal of a school experience as possible. And then online, I know many of the schools, they form online chat groups for students to, uh, you know, talk about things they have in, you know, common. Uh, whether it's extracurricular activity or whatever it is, give students a, just an outlet just to speak freely. Uh, because this, is, this virus is robbing us of social um, interaction, if you will. And that's one thing we try to provide as much as possible at school, uh, schools to get students to interact with one another and for them to um, be as normal as possible. You know, to Let's echo to Dr. Ray's comments about I'm that, I think what, what I'm sure they'll see in Memphis, we'll see here, because we serve more than 80% of the in poverty, 85% Black and Latino families who've been the hardest hit. The fear uh, and the concerns, and frankly, the dissonance from health authorities at all levels for so many, many months has a cost. And that institutional memory lives on. So what we expect is more limited in-person attendance in the spring to prove we can do it and manage risk to give all families a sense of what the environment's like. We'll have summer school for all and for those children whose families choose their participation, we hope to have more in-person participation. And by the time we get to August, we hope we'll be able to demonstrate through our actions what it looks like in a school setting. But as Dr. Ray said, it won't be exactly what it was a year ago. It can't be. The health authorities have still made pretty clear the masks will be with us for some time, distancing will be with us for some time, uh, and all of the things that we're going to need to continue to do to make sure schools are the safest possible environment for children and those who work in schools. Thank you. Let's, let's finish up with an audience question. Um, we have a question from Lori Sears from Maryland who asks, how are schools managing apps and programs for their students and teachers? so that they are not overwhelmed. Um, Superintendent Butner, let's start with you. Sure. Uh, what we uh, did right out of the box was put together a group of educators, because one of the things that we found within days was since the use of technology had never been the center of the plate, it always was an extra. It wasn't something the district had the dollars to make sure all had access to, so it was an extra. So we brought together a group of classroom teachers and principals and our technology team and some outside partners, the Microsofts, the Amazons, the providers to say, what do we have? We did a quick inventory. We were supporting more than 400 different uses of technology in an average school, 400 differences. So we had to streamline that a little bit. We listened to the voice of those in the classroom to say, which, which are most helpful to you? You've got to have versus nice to haves. Where can we provide the training on those? So we provided three or four rounds of training now. We 35,000 teachers uh, back in March, another 20,000 again before the end of last school year, all teachers again uh, to start the new school year. So training in the tools and technologies. And we brought in the partners to help provide them the benefit of our thinking because we're a pretty big customer for many. And so they're responsive to us when we say, 
it works like this, but boy, if you could change this feature, folks in the classroom tells it's much more valuable to us. So we've integrated all those tools and solutions now into a much more streamlined set. And wash, rinse, repeat, we continue to offer training for our classroom educators and our families and students. So we have a YouTube channel which shows how to use all the different tools and technologies that classroom educators can access, families can access, students can access. We have a tech hotline people can call with questions because it's new in schools. Uh, and as Dr. Ray said earlier, we would have taken years to plan for this. Uh, we didn't have years, we had days and weeks. So we're building the plane as we fly it. And one of the things has to be to streamline the use of technology, figure out which tools provide the greatest impact and make sure you're making sure all in the school community can access them, which is what we're doing. Superintendent Ray, do you have a, a quick uh, a quick thought on that to close us out? Yes, you know, we use um, Microsoft Teams. We streamline that process where all of our students and teachers access and use um, Microsoft Teams, where again, uh, all of our teachers, they were trained. Uh, we train parents, we train students. Uh, but one thing we wanted to do is to uh, ensure that we had digital safety and privacy. Um, you know, we've had uh, robust data protection guidelines and um, strengthening uh, protocols to ensure uh, data and privacy is protected. That's what I was most afraid of. Um, so we had to ensure that our devices had uh, tracking software, uh, federally approved uh, content filtering and strict guidelines for uh, acceptable use for our teachers and students. Um, and also we, you know, provided a, a guide, so to speak, of what to do and what not to do on devices. That's so important. Uh, we uh, had digital ambassadors from each school to really help our teachers and students navigate the system. And again, this was, uh, you know, work that we had to do in a um, blink of an eye. And I'm just so thankful that I have a great school board that uh, who allows me to lead and uh, gives me the opportunity to be as creative as possible for our students. But uh, uh, we use one uh, modality of instruction uh, and that's Microsoft Teams. Of course, our teachers had other different things that they wanted to use, of course, but uh, we couldn't support that. Uh, we had to support uh, something that's going to ensure safety for our students. And we want to thank our partners at Microsoft uh, for really working with us and uh, really, really supporting us. And as uh, Superintendent uh, said, um, you know, when you're a large customer, such as uh, Memphis Shelby County Schools, you do get some some um, uh, great treatment. <laughs> so many issues to talk about. Unfortunately, we are out of time, but um, Superintendent oh, no. Butner, <laughs> Superintendent Ray, thank you both so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be back with two leaders in digital transformation of manufacturing, the CEO of MXD, Chandra Brown, and the Chief Digital Officer at Mars Inc., Sandeep Dadlani. Stay tuned. Thank you. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor.
The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hi, I'm Barbara Humpton, CEO of Siemens USA, and I'm here with Jill Savitt, the president and CEO of the National Center for Civil and Human Rights in Atlanta. Welcome, Jill. Hello, Barbara. Thank you. In the video that we just saw, it's clear that you were deeply impacted by the coronavirus, as so many were, and yet you managed to reopen your doors with the help of technologies that helped with air purification and, and other monitoring that needed to go on. Here we are a year later, and we are deep into dealing with the uh, rollout of vaccines and, and what may happen as things reopen. What I'd love to do is get some insights from you about the decision-making processes you went through and what advice you would give to others. Let's start with your initial decision to reopen the doors. What affected your thinking there? So we were among the, the last uh, cultural institutions to reopen our doors. And we were really concerned about our ability to give people confidence that they would be safe inside the center. You have to remember, we tell civil rights history and a group that was hugely impacted by coronavirus was the black community, which is a major part of our visitorship. Um, and so we wanted to be able to say with confidence that we would be able to keep them as safe as we possibly could. And it was through our partnership with Siemens that we actually got the confidence that we could do it by making sure we were taking every step possible. And the air purification system that we now have, state of the art, an institution like ours doesn't always have access to such things, but our longstanding relationship with Siemens helped us secure that as well as the temperature scanner at our front door so that everyone coming in, we wanted to not only make sure that people had the confidence, but that we were taking every step and, and being seen to take every step that we possibly could to keep people safe. I know that your visitors really appreciate that. We all know that the pandemic spreads more easily, the virus spreads more easily indoors. And I, I, we're at Siemens, we're working hard to pull together technologies that will help make buildings actually a first line of defense. We're, we know that we have to engage in mask wearing and, and distancing. Those are actions we can all take, but the buildings themselves can play a part. Tell us a little bit more about what visitors might experience when they come and visit you in person. So we've taken all the steps that one needs to take outside the building, which is that we're only allowing, allowing a certain amount of people in at one time. To come in, you can't just walk up to the box office. You have to buy tickets in advance with time tickets. But from the minute you come up to our building, there's signage outside that says all the steps we've taken. We have on our website a list of things that we recommend people do. Um, we're mask mandatory. Not all of the institutions in our area are, but we definitely are. And so from the moment they walk in and see the temperature scanner that we um, are able to have through our partnership with Siemens, it's right at the front door. So you can't get past the threshold without having your temperature taken. And then you get the, the go sign and you can come in. We also have um, stickers on the floor that show where people can stand, what six feet is. I think six feet is often a little bit bigger than people think it is. So we have the six feet stickers, and then we made a new path through our exhibitions 
that makes it so people don't walk um, past each other, that you can only walk in one, one line through so you never pass another visitor. That, that's another step we've taken. We have um, constant cleaning throughout the center. So we actually stop letting people in, do a round of cleaning before we let the next group of people in. And you are spaced out within the exhibitions themselves. So that's all the things people can see. And then in addition, we have monitors that allow us to check the air quality and um, that you saw in the video. And we also have an entire filtration system that happens behind the scenes to keep the air pure. So I think you're right. There are all the steps that human beings can take, but we have the extra security of knowing that there is technology working for us in the background to keep the air fresh and pure. That's absolutely essential as we think about opening up so many of the facilities that we need from hospitals to schools to the office buildings where, frankly, people being in city centers uh, are keeping vital service providers in business. So with so many different enterprises thinking about how they will use their built infrastructure going forward, I'm curious, what advice do you have for others? I think the most important advice I, I would give to others is how you communicate with your constituency. And once you think about, well, what am I going to tell people? You start to make the list, well, what would I want to know as someone visiting an institution that we that steps we could take to make sure that people are secure? And I think, you know, being able to open up indoor spaces um, and to do so with confidence, you need to really map out the visitor experience. Well, in our case, visitors, but it could be employees, it could be students. What is that person's individual path through the building? And from there, you can start to take really obvious steps to keep people apart, to have hand sanitizer stationed throughout your building, to make sure that the bathrooms are cleaned and cleaned often, and that you're only letting a certain amount of people into any small space at one time. And then I think finding partners who have expertise. You know, we run an excellent history museum, but you have to get help from your friends who know a little bit more about engineering and technology. And we were very fortunate to have partners, um, specifically in this case, Siemens, to help advise us on the steps we needed to take. I think as we've seen throughout this pandemic, no one person or no one organization can solve everything by themselves. And it takes expertise being married, coming together to help give advice and insight as to what any individual institution needs to do based on how it is laid out and how people interact in that space. Well, Jill Sabat, fantastic advice to all of us. And let me say on behalf of all of us at Siemens, how proud we are to be affiliated with you. Thank you for all you are doing to help us understand, address, and, and grow as we learn more and more about civil and human rights. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Barbara. My pleasure. Thank you for your support. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Hello, and welcome back to Washington Post Live. I'm Christina Passariello, Technology Editor at The Washington Post. And it's great to have two leaders in digital transformation of manufacturing joining us now. 
First, we've got the CEO of MXD, Chandra Brown. Welcome, Chandra. Thanks so much, Christina. Pleasure to be here. And we're also joined by the Chief Digital Officer of Mars Inc., Sandeep Dadlani. Welcome, Sandeep. Hi, Christina. Hi, Chandra. Good to be with you. So I'd like to kick it off with the news this morning. Um, this morning, President Biden ordered a 100-day review of potential vulnerabilities in U.S. supply chains. We've heard a lot about how semiconductor shortages are slowing down auto, auto manufacturing. But I'd love to hear from both of you. If President Biden's team called you and asked you about supply chain shortages, what would you say? Um, Chandra, maybe we can start with you. Absolutely. Well, I would say good start. Um, and thank you very much for that article today. I, I think it's a, it's a fantastic way to start out this. We at MXD, we're the nation's national digital manufacturing institute. And so supply chain has been an issue near and dear to our heart, um, even pre-pandemic. So I actually would say one of the, the bright spots, if you will, that's come out of the pandemic is this increased focus. Everyone is talking about where do you get your toilet paper from, right? Where is my supply chain? Where is it located? Critical goods like PPE. Um, so I, it's one of the things that I would tell the Biden administration, great work. You know, doing these studies is an incredible start. And as you said in the article, then we need to implement the lessons learned because this is a, something that's going to take an all of government approach. Um, so I really think it, it's a fantastic start. Um, for us at MXD, as I said, we're doing things like supply chain risk alerts. And so this mapping and the data they get will be able to really flow directly into ongoing work and technology that we're doing today. Um, so I would say keep at it as fast as you can go. As you know, I used to be in the government uh, with the Obama administration, and I know things crank a little slow in the federal government, but super excited to see this work. And there are some top notch people working on it. So I'm very excited. That's encouraging. Sandeep, what about you? What would you say to President Biden's team if they called you? Well, first of all, uh, the previous section with the two superintendents of schools, uh, my God, I feel compared to all these challenges, uh, they have all the challenges, the real challenges. Uh, now, Mars is a $40 billion large privately held family owned company with operations in more than 88 countries. So this is not just a, a Joe Biden US challenge for us. It becomes a, a global country by country challenge. And from a supply chain perspective, our first priority, believe it or not, has been the safety of our associates. Uh, these are factories that provide essential goods to our uh, you know, consumers, uh, pet care lovers, pet, you know, pet lovers, and candy, confectionery, snacking, food lovers. And we are responsible to getting them out to our consumers on time. And through the pandemic, frankly, we've been fortunate that uh, our products and services have been in, in great demand. Um, and so one thing that has happened that I think all governments uh, will agree and all manufacturers will agree is that the value of data through the pandemic has just been amplified. The data scientists got into the middle of the boardroom. Where do we have inventory? Which suppliers are in stock? Which channels are still open? How can consumers order food in very in different ways through WhatsApp, online, and other ways has just been magnified. So I think we've done a, a reasonable job in getting our consumers hold of uh, of our goods and services. Uh, in fact, you know we were struggling with rolling out augmented reality in our factories before the pandemic, but suddenly because we had 
you know, only critical staff in the factory and other staff at home guiding them, augmented reality took off in our factories and that helped the supply chain and so on. So we should do all kind of gap analysis and more vulnerability analysis. I know there's a lot more to be done, but the pandemic in a way has made our supply chain much more resilient, much more digital than ever before. That's so interesting um, to hear about what it's like in the factories. Um, Sandeep, maybe can you tell us what is like, what's been the biggest um, sort of crisis that you faced in your supply chain since the pandemic started? Well, I mean, first of all, this is a 110 year old company, which means we've survived two world wars, five recessions and many natural disasters. So there's a lot of experience to go with, you know, managing crisis like this. I think the first concern we always had was the safety of our associates. Just like all of your organizations, our associates were impacted either personally or someone known to them. So the first challenge we sought to overcome is to make sure that we had the right facilities, the guidelines, the medical procedures, the health procedures to keep our associates safe. Once that was clear, then we shifted our attention to using digital and data to enable fast moving of goods and services. There were times when in certain markets in the world, retailers were shut down. We had to pivot very quickly to different forms of ordering. We launched about 18 direct-to-consumer websites in the last 12 months, something that we had not done in the previous 10 years put together. We had to reinforce e-commerce channels in a very, very different way. In the end, it came down to visibility, visibility of where the consumer is and what she wants, where our channels are, where our factories are, where our distributors are, and so on. And that visibility has been perhaps the biggest enabler uh, through our supply chain journey in the last 12 months. That's so interesting to hear about those the changes in um, in how you're you're selling to consumers. Um, Chandra, maybe can you tell us a little bit about um, what this you know fourth industrial revolution has been like from your perspective over the last year? You know, we've seen rapid digital adoption um, from everything from the classroom to the workplace um, because of the pandemic. So tell us what it's been like from your perspective and what are the kind of biggest hurdles that your clients um, come to you for advice on? Yeah, absolutely. As this public-private partnership, we have over 300 members, big and small. We have academia and government. We're bringing them all together really to solve problems that are kind of too big for any one company, right, to solve. So this has actually made us uh, be incredibly busy. <laughs> but what I would tell you that we've seen, and I do have some, some big worries and big concerns, the good news is, to start with the happy story, right, uh, the reality is we are moving faster, particularly as a nation, along the digital thread and through this digital journey. Uh, McKinsey, one of our great partners, they recently did a study that said that digitization has been accelerated and supply chain interactions have increased by three to four years because of this pandemic. So that's a great sign, right? I think people, and especially, I wanna really shout out to our small and medium-sized businesses. You know, one of my concerns is this is a big thing for them to invest and to figure out where's their return on investment. Not everyone is a large multinational, right? And so we're here to help them kind of start their path and move on that journey. 
My concerns are really twofold, and these are what keep me up at night. I'm so passionate about manufacturing and what we're doing, and it, I have two major worries. And honestly, one is on the technology side, and that is when we talk about supply chains, we talk about you know virtual reality, digital twins, we must mention cybersecurity, right, as well. Um, especially, again, you're as vulnerable as your weakest link, right, which is in your supply chain normally. Um, so we are also the National Center for Cybersecurity in Manufacturing. And on our floor, we demonstrate hacking and all the vulnerabilities that are on your manufacturing floor. So that keeps me up because manufacturing, most people may not know this, is the most targeted sector. And we're all about IP, right? So you can sync companies so quickly. And we've seen this an example, an example in the news. So I would always say along with digital, we want to be talking about cybersecurity in the same breath. Um, and my other big concern is it's not about technology, it's about the people. Um, again, let's be clear, Mike, uh, manufacturing ha has had a pipeline issue. We all know this for 100 years now, probably. We don't have the skilled manufacturers, machinists, fitters, right? While we at MXD are really focused on the next looming pipeline issue, which is here today, is where are our skilled digital workforce of the future? Where is the skilled cyber workforce of the future? I mean, we already know there's a 2.4 million gap in terms of what we need. And so we must be embracing more diversity. We must be bringing more people back in. So I know that's a lot, but those are the two big areas um, that I think a lot about and that I, I worry about our future. And we need to be addressing that right away. So those, yes, those seem like very, you know, big, those are big challenges. So maybe can you tell us a little bit about how you're thinking about cybersecurity going forward and, you know, the, like, how do you advise a company to get trained up for that? Um, and what kinds of additional skills do, do companies need? <laughs> So here's, there is some good news. Again, I, I like to be both, right? Um, I am an optimist at heart. The reality is a lot of these cybersecurity jobs, we can reskill and upskill the existing workforce, right? So there's some incredibly trained people, and I especially look towards veterans and, and other sometimes underserved populations that can really fill a critical role um, for this nation in terms of cyber. Um, I would also say for us, we just put out, and again, um, it's free, you know, a resource at um, mxdusa.org. It's a cybersecurity hiring guide for manufacturing. Think about this, Christina. There are jobs that don't even exist now, like job titles, right? And we did a digital um, job taxonomy a while ago talking about digital ethicists, right? And jobs that we don't even think about today that haven't even been created. So we have to be really thinking futuristic. Um, so we put out these guides that has like 300 different positions and how you can upskill and what's the training that's needed. We do our own training. There's tons of great educators and providers out there in this space. I just think we need more um, and it needs to come faster. So the good news is there's a lot of work being done in this area. Um, the bad news is, honestly, it couldn't be done fast enough. Sandeep, tell us what it's like from your perspective. How do you think about cybersecurity in Mars's supply chain? Look, I think Chandra is right. Um, cybersecurity was always a big issue, and, and I think the pandemic accelerated it. We got hit, um, you know, hundreds more times than, than before during the pandemic, and that's natural. Uh, companies like us are, are, are targets for, for cyber attackers. Now, we've made intentional investments in cybersecurity with the right toolage, with the right infra infrastructure. But as Chandra said, the weakest link is always the awareness of all our associates and the responsibility with which they 
work and handle our assets. So our big focus on cybersecurity is, of course, to be at the industry norms and beyond in terms of NIST frameworks and the regular industry benchmarks there are. But our biggest focus has been awareness and education of our associates. Frankly, whether it's cybersecurity or the other digital skills that Chandra talked about, in the end, we want every associate, which is a Mars employee, a Martian, to be digital. This digital or cybersecurity is not about creating a small department in the center. We want the entire company. And that is a journey we are on. Um, we feel very good about the enablement we are trying to do, the education, the awareness. We feel it's like a digital armor you put on and, and convert a, a, a good associate into an Iron Man, a Wonder Woman, a superhero effectively. Uh, and that's what we are out to do here. Uh, Sandeep, could you give us an example or two about how you've been um, you know, training employees, whether it's in cybersecurity or just to be more digital? Um, what's, what's it like actually on the ground to get that kind of change? You know, Christina, one of the basic skills we think in going digital is around design thinking and user centricity in terms of whatever job you're on, finding the problem very clearly with with the consumer at the heart of the problem or, or your customer at the heart of the problem, depending on the business you're in. The second thing is around use of data and analytics uh, in everything you do. You could be a factory operator, a, a truck driver, or a brand manager, uh, or a vet in one of our vet hospitals. Uh, the use of data and analytics is omniscient everywhere. And the third is automation, uh, automation of menial repetitive tasks so that you, know, you and I and Chandra can focus on finding the next problem creatively. So what we've done is we've rolled out these basic skills as part of our Mars University curriculum across Mars. We have now 20,000 associates trained in design thinking, which I think is one of the largest movements in any, any large global company. We have 30,000 associates trained in the basics of analytics, visualization, Power BI, Tableau, and framing basic analytics solutions. And we're just beginning to roll out a large automation skill set and drive combined with cybersecurity training and awareness. So this is level zero. Then we get to level one and level two, depending on your function. If you're an e-commerce manager, then you'll really train on search and, and other sort of content optimization and so on. If you're in supply chain, you're, you're training on digital twins and digital factories and how IoT works and, and so on. So depending on, on your function, you can then want, I'll share a simple story with you. Um, I was about to roll out a machine learning training to about 50 technical associates, and accidentally the email went out to, to all Mars associates, um, which is horrific to find in your inbox so many out-of-office responses in the morning from all of Mars, you know, that, that sort of influx. But a few days later, to my surprise, we found thousands of Martians, whether they were in factories or wet hospitals or R&D labs, signing up for that machine learning training. You see, the, the propensity of all our associates in different functions to want to be digital um, is often underestimated. Everyone wants to be digital, and we are here to help them get there. That's a great story, Sandeep. <laughs> um, Chandra, the US Department of Defense is a founding partner of MDX, MXD, and uh, mm -hmm. together you have a massive research and development portfolio. Can you share any details about upcoming projects that you're you're working on together? 
Oh, thank you so much for that. Yeah, we actually do, um, and we're really grateful for the U.S. Department of Defense because, I mean, the defense industrial supply chain is the basis of much of the rest of this country's supply chains. And so they have been an incredible partner to us. Right now, we do a three-year roadmap. And again, a lot of this is available to the public. We call it our strategic investment plan. And you can see the over 100 projects that we have kind of in the queue, right, in the lineup. And what the pandemic has done is it's kind of allowed us to reprioritize. So all of our members, literally big and small, academic, other government institutions, they all come together. We find these pain points, right? And then we we devise how we can solve this in the quickest and best way, because as you started out, we are in the midst of a revolution in manufacturing. So we need to come to better solutions faster that can help the majority of our folks. So um, I would tell you one of the ones I'm um, pretty excited about, there's again, a a ton of them, but I am really excited about uh, our supply chain risk alert. So supply chain is kind of the talk of the day. It's in the news. Um, You guys did that great article today. You know, we actually started this pre-pandemic in a phase one, and now we're expanding on that. And basically, think about it. You're going to take in all these sources of data. This is the great use of AI and data analytics. We're going to bring together all these different folks, big companies, small companies, and we bring in things like weather, logistics, transportation, um, you know, in the future, probably things like healthcare, social media, so we can do a predictive algorithm that helps people figure out because that's what we want to be is predictive, not reactive, right? And we know there's going to be more supply chain disruptions in different areas. So I'm super excited to get this done and get this in the hands of the manufacturing community uh, because I think it's going to be a huge asset. And again, Yes, a lot of the large companies have incredible logistics and distribution, but you know we need to help even the smallest of companies as well figure out how are they going to get their goods and supplies um, because again, everyone is reliant on someone else in a different tier here. So that is one I'm really excited about and can't wait till we get to show that to the public. That sounds great. Um, let's go to an audience question. We have a question from Steve Bellocchi from California. So he asks, do you study the effect of new technology on workers when it is introduced to the company or their workflow? Um, Sandeep, maybe you could take this one on first. Oh, absolutely, Steve. The, actually, we start before that. Um, there is no technology project that begins without deeply studying the, the worker first. Uh, how does she work? What does she feel when she works? What are her, her main pain points? And frankly, framing the problem that we're trying to solve versus just framing a technology project. Once we've done that, we are now designing technology to enhance that human experience or to improve it or to solve a pain point and then observe how that technology iteratively improves it. So uh, we love doing projects in short sprints of four, six, sometimes 12 weeks at max and rolling out technology iteratively because you and I know. Almost every technology decision you take today for a project you do today is irrelevant three years from now, which means this is going to be a continuous refresh going on. And and the more human-centric we get, the more purpose-led we get, the better technology becomes in amplifying your and my potential. So yes, we have a lot of observation going on before and after a technology project. Just to follow on on that, Sandeep, can you give us any examples of like what is what's the kind of data that you look at? What are the kinds of questions that you're 
that you're asking or, you know, give us a little sense of what it's like by example. There are, you know, there are businesses sometimes that the traditional way of doing technology projects used to be to frame these large ambitious statements. How do we create an omni-channel connected end-to-end delightful consumer experience? But when you get consumers into a room and ask them, how do you feel about the consumer experience? Or you get factory workers you know, talking about how do they feel about running a production line? The real consumer, the user responses are different. The consumer says, I don't know what you're talking about. Your PayPal button didn't work last time. The package came chipped. Or the factory worker says, actually, if this is introduced at the end of the shift versus at the beginning of a shift, it might make a, completely, a complete difference. I may not need augmented reality glasses. Actually, an iPad will do for now or, or something like that. You get an aha or an unmet need that we don't then you know, jump with technology because if you go in with a hammer, then everything will look like a nail. So in these situations, the best thing to do is then to solve for that particular feeling or need in a short four-week burst. And after four weeks, say, all right, my friend, you work with an iPad. You work with a video call. Now, how about you try on these glasses and see if they work? And if they don't work well because of certain things, then we iterate again for a different kind of augmented reality glass and so on. So this sprint-based approach helps us improve on the floor or with the consumer versus trying to build an, you know, a large machine and then give it back to them in the end. And you know, those projects never succeed. So speaking out of some failure and, and some successes, we've kind of unlocked this iterative sprint approach. And that has excited the user then, not just to adopt the technology, but to train on this technology. I mean, in December, to, to Chandra's point, we had a Mars AI festival where we invited everybody, all factory workers, everybody to the AI festival. And more than a thousand of them signed up to learn the basics of AI. So Chandra's challenge of upgrading the skill sets of the future factory worker, well, game on. We're trying our best to <laughs> upskill them through a, both a pull and a push movement in driving this uh, journey. And, and of course, partners like Chandra are always um, you know, inspirational to us. Well, thank you both. Unfortunately, that's all the time that we have. So thank you both so so much for these uh, this interesting conversation um, and for taking the time to meet with us. Uh, we have a great lineup of interviews this week at Washington Post Live. So head to WashingtonPostLive.com, check out the schedule and register to watch. Once again, I'm Christina Passariello and thanks for watching Washington Post Live.